Section 16 of Criminal Investigation, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Criminal Investigation, a Practical Handbook for Magistrates, Police Officers, and Lawyers, Volume 3, by Hans Gross. Translated by John Adam and John Collier Adam. Burglary and housebreaking. Entering by the door. Attacking the lock. Ever since locks have existed, people have attempted to open them, either by force or by using false keys. And as the locksmith's art has progressed, so has that of housebreakers made corresponding progress. When necessary, these gentlemen can rank as artists. But if the locksmith's skill is such that it can only be attained as regards its highest flight by but a few even among themselves, example, as regards the manufacture of safes, the thief has to replace the professional skill which is not in his possession with craft and cunning. Let us take an example. When a safe, guaranteed fire and burglar proof, is sold, three similar keys are handed to the purchaser. The first he himself carries. The second is enclosed in the safe itself, whereas the third is entrusted to an intimate friend or confidential servant. But it is certainly not the manufacturer himself who makes these three keys, but one of his workmen. And whatever confidence we have in the latter, we cannot help supposing that there may be a dishonest one among them. What hinders him from making a fourth key like the others and keeping it for himself? And when he is in possession of a certain number of these keys, it will not be difficult for him to find out from packers and servants employed in the factory to whom these safes have been sold and whither they have been sent. And when he knows who are the purchasers of the safes of which he has keys in reserve, he will only have to obtain access to the house as a servant, if possible, or as a workman upon some job, such as a chimney sweep, water pipe man, gas man, etc., or, if he does not succeed in entering the house in this way, he goes courting the cook or the nurse. In short, he will be able to get at the safe guaranteed against burglary, and will know how to make use of his key to open it. We therefore advise that two safes be bought from different manufacturers, a small and a large one, and that they be placed one inside the other, in which case a fourth key will be useless. But as often as not, it is by strength and skill that the lock is forced. Let us first deal with padlocks. False keys are used much more rarely for padlocks than for fixed locks or locks screwed into doors for force can be much more easily used with a padlock. In this case, the thief has only to profit by the unheard-of thoughtlessness of most people. It may often be noticed that the peak, or peg, A-B in figure 141, is simply let into the wood without the two parts of the end at B being stretched away from one another or twisted round. It is ridiculous to attach to such a peg a heavy padlock, which serves for hardly anything else than to allow a thief to get a good hold of the peg and pull it out. 
It often happens also that the hasp, C, of the padlock is strong and massive and cannot be worked with a file, while the ring, A, of the peg is so weak that the thief need not even have recourse to a file, but can cut it in two with the pincers. But if the peg is well fixed, if the stems are stretched apart and bent round, and if the iron of which it is made is strong, the thief tries to wrench the padlock off, and now the desires of the thief seem to have been foreseen, especially in the case of the padlocks called American, which are quite round and have a very high hasp. The work and manufacture of these padlocks are doubtless excellent, for the tumblers of the locks are made by a permutation machine, and it rarely happens that two keys are exactly alike, but these padlocks have the inconvenience of possessing an exceedingly long hasp, so that between the ring of the peg and the lock itself, that is to say, the inside of the hasp C, there is a large empty space into which it is easy to insert a bar of iron. It is then only necessary to twist the bar of iron, and the padlock is broken. While on the subject, we may also draw attention to another weak point in these padlocks. They are composed of two cylindrical capsules, one being set into the other, and it is in the space inside that the lock system is situated. But the capsules are frequently not riveted, but simply joined at the edges, which are made to overlap one another. In such a case, it is sufficient to knock all round the edges with a piece of wood until the capsules become detached from one another. This done, the mechanism is disclosed and the lock easily opened. In all cases, the method employed should be well noted for it will generally betray the kind of thief and the way in which he works, and will tell us whether or not he was well informed. As regards locks fixed or screwed into wood, much cannot be said. We all know how the ordinary lock of a door or almira is constructed, and even if some of us did not know it, the sketch and the description which might be given would not be of very much assistance. The investigating officer who is ignorant of the construction of a lock is advised to get the first locksmith he comes across to minutely explain the working of a lock taken to pieces, for without some such knowledge he will find himself at his first burglary in much embarrassment and will meet with insurmountable difficulties. The locksmith will also be able to show and explain to him the various false keys and skeleton keys. Figure 142 shows a complete set of the different sorts of pick locks, skeleton keys, etc., that are usually found in the possession of a versatile burglar. For ordinary use, he finds the tools shown in the drawing all he requires. But in practice, the investigating officer must never forget that the fact that a thief has not a complete set of skeleton keys does not prove that he is not a housebreaker and has not been in the habit of forcing doors. Indeed, the skillful and experienced thief, whom outsiders never represent without a bunch of false keys, is content with much simpler means, a bent nail, a piece of iron wire, and a knife. The heads of the profession even pretend to be able to open strong locks with a piece of wood and a length of thread, 
When a thief wishes to obtain the highest regard of one of his comrades, he says he can open locks by blowing on them, that is to say, with the simplest of means and in an extraordinarily short space of time. On the other hand, it must be confessed that a bunch of false keys and implements of a fine and delicate nature are often found in the home of a professional criminal. One set was as ingenious as elegant. It seemed no imaginable case had been unforeseen. The instruments were of the finest steel, the handles were of copper, and of the most delicate workmanship. The screws were microscopic and the whole was enclosed in a velvet case. Something similar is shown in figure 143, which displays the working tools of a notorious London burglar. Such bags are commonly used by these people, for lawyers, doctors, and others carry similar ones, so that their possession is by no means remarkable. Two things remain to be pointed out. If the thief succeeds in getting near the lock to be opened, he makes first a wax copy of the keyhole, then buys in the first ironmonger's shop a common, suitable rough key of malleable iron, and files it until it fits the keyhole. Then the key is blackened with soot, carefully introduced into the lock and lightly turned, so that the compartments of the lock are impressed on the sooted key bits. Then the final act is rapidly accomplished. When, however, the question is whether a lock shall be opened by a master key, then a man gains admission and examines the inside of the lock. This is covered with a dark layer of rust, thick oil, and dust, which are wanting only where the key rubs against the wards. When a master key has been used, traces of it are almost always found. Bright, fresh scratches and cracks which do not occur when the ordinary key is used. As for modern locks, which are often of fine construction, such as those of Chubb, Brahma, Newell, Aid, Hobbs, Fenby, Wertheim, Yale, Kromerschlosser, and all other locks of such kind, their mechanism is so complicated and so difficult to understand that it is useless to give a description of them inasmuch as outsiders will be obliged, in spite of all, to call in the assistance of experts when necessary, for without them he will be incapable of obtaining any results whatever. What the executioner of London said in his memoirs should be remembered. There is not a single lock in the world which cannot be easily opened, but the more complicated a lock is, the greater is the mystification. And indeed, it is very true that to open a complicated lock, it is not always necessary to make use of very complicated instruments. It is asserted that the best of locks may be opened with a certain number of needles, skillfully disposed, and even by the vigorous jet from the nozzle of a pipe placed to the keyhole. The most approved method is to introduce into the keyhole fine moist thread, by means of a piece of wire, until it is nearly filled up, and all the tumblers are covered. Then a piece of wood, in the shape of a chisel, is pressed on the thread, and the tumblers are pushed back. If this does not succeed, the thread is pulled out, 
and the same manipulation is tried a second or even a tenth time. In ordinary Indian and even Anglo-Indian households, every key opens every lock, so that burglars have little difficulty on this score. In many cases, the thief does not attack the lock itself, but some other part of the safe. If the bottom of the safe be screwed to the floor and the top jut out a little, this is a help to the thief. He takes his jack, places it against the top, works the screw, and the safe rarely resists. At times, it also happens that the manufacturers of safes are absolutely wanting in conscience. The following fact, which comes from a reliable source, is a proof of this. The owner of a safe, guaranteed against burglary, had mislaid his keys. He sent for a skilled locksmith. The latter did not take the trouble even to look at the locks, but started to carefully scrape the varnish at the edge of the back of the safe. He soon brought to light a number of screws, which he took out and then pulled out the back. The heads of the screws were only smeared over with some substance and then covered with varnish. But it is not always so easy to open a safe, and, when necessary, burglars are equipped with the most perfect outfit. Lately, the public press took considerable interest in implements used in breaking open safes on the occasion of an exhibition of these instruments organized by the Polytechnic Society of Berlin and connected with a conference concerning electric apparatus destined to protect property. In one of the reports of this exhibition, it was stated that a burglar who wishes to make a serious attack upon a safe guaranteed against fire and burglary, ought not only to possess great bodily strength and technical skill, but must also be, in a certain sense, a man of considerable capital, for the instruments which he requires must be of careful workmanship and represent, in consequence, a fairly considerable capital. The days when the thief used to pierce a hole with an ordinary center bit and then make it larger with a cutter are gone. Nowadays, housebreakers' implements take up little room and can be easily carried in a small handbag. The most important instrument is a folding lever, with which considerable force may be applied. But in the meantime, the manufacturer of safes has not remained stationary. In the first place, it was necessary to construct safes offering no hold to pincers or grapnels. Hence, they are cast in one single piece of metal. It was then attempted to make them proof against gimlet and file by using plates of steel. But, as steel is not very elastic, a blow of a hammer is sufficient to break it. So then manufacturers combined plates of steel with plates of ordinary iron in order to render such blows harmless. But thieves, in their turn, made corresponding progress. The skilled thief is furnished with an oxyhydrogen gas lamp, with which, in from 10 to 15 minutes, he can pierce a hole large enough to allow the passage of his whole body. It is true that heavy safes offer considerably more resistance and necessitate several hours' work. Be that as it may, 
the necessity having been recognized of finding other measures of safety, recourse has been had to electricity. A Munich manufacturer has made an electric apparatus of safety bells upon the principle of the contact of wires. These are enclosed in the safe itself, the wires passing through holes, which unhappily are the most vulnerable points. An engineer named Berg has devised another method. He places his apparatus upon the safe itself and establishes communication with bells installed in the watchman's room. The advantage of this consists in the impossibility, even to a clever electrician, of preventing the apparatus working, for as soon as the slightest movement is given to the safe, as soon as a flame is brought to bear upon the electric wires which encircle it, or as soon as the current is interrupted in any other manner whatsoever, the bells begin to ring and the presence of the thief is betrayed. American apparatus depend on the mobility of mercury. In the safe is a shell filled with mercury in which is dipped one wire of an electromagnetic ringing apparatus while the other wire hangs just above the surface of the mercury. If the safe is now touched, pushed, shoved, bored into or otherwise manipulated, then the level of the mercury alters, the second wire comes in contact with it, and the sounding apparatus becomes immediately active. The wires must be led through the back of the safe direct into the wall and thence carried to the watchman's room. In addition to the actual cutting of alarm wires, an arrangement of levers connected to an ordinary working current gives a sure protection. As soon as the thief alters such an arrangement in any way, destroys the battery or breaks the conductor, the alarm at once starts, so that the burglar, by the very attempt to render the alarm arrangement ineffective, betrays himself. The principal tool is still the familiar crowbar, and it is true that in many complicated burglaries, especially where the burglars have been frightened away, a crowbar is left behind. A glance at figure 144 shows remarkable similarity among crowbars. Hence, it is not strange that burglars, when alarmed, leave behind the heavy and not easily identified crowbar and take away with them only the small tools. Besides crowbars, we can distinguish between two different systems of burglary implements. One system is not intended to force the hole safe, but only to make a hole large enough to reach inside and withdraw the contents. For this purpose, the so-called shutter cutters are used, the lower one being for small and the upper for large holes, figure 145. First, a quite small hole must be made with a drill in the side or back of the safe. If the lower cutter is used, then the middle drill of the trifurcated end is inserted in the hole, the head of the cutter is pressed to the breast, and the handle is turned with the right hand. The two other prongs of the trifurcated end are sharp chisels that bite further and further into the steel plate, and at last cut a circular piece out of it. If the upper cutter is used, the central borer is brought into the drilled borehole, and the long handle is turned, 
until the two end chisels have cut out a circular piece. In the second system, leverage is used. Here also a small hole is first bored with a drill, and this is made larger by the center bit A in figure 146, with which the various bits F can also be used. The file C lends a helping hand, and projecting edges are removed by the rasp D. When the hole is sufficiently large, the implement B with its steel jaws is brought into use to seize and bend the edge of the plate at the hole. The length of this implement ensures an almost irresistible leverage, and thus it is easy to rip open the whole side of a steel safe. Figure 147 shows the result of such work for which a burglar in Hamburg had no more than one hour. An experienced burglar said once, Never mind how secure the lock may be. A safe can be opened like a sardine tin. Safes have recently been constructed of 30 millimeter plates, of which the steel is so treated by a special process that the outside is as brittle as glass and the inside as tough as iron. The outside cannot be bored, and the inside cannot be destroyed by blows. Naturally, even such plates cannot withstand explosives. 4. Entering in other ways. Cases in which the thief enters neither by the door, nor by the window, nor by a hole made in the door or the floor, but, on the other hand, through the roof, as by descending the attic ladder, or climbing down the water pipe leading from the cisterns, are, it is true, somewhat rare, though without being so rare as is supposed. We lay stress upon this way of getting into a house, for if the thief is a little skillful, he leaves no trace of his passage. No one paying attention to an attic or water closet or bathroom door found open in the morning, and besides the recognition of this method is important, as serving to explain a theft, which, for want of other indications, may be laid to the account of the unfortunate domestics. Of the many false accusations concerning thefts, the greater number are laid against servants. We have all known many cases where articles asserted to have been taken by servants have been found again, or stolen by other persons. This is a fact which is easily explained, an article of value disappears, the servant knows the place where it usually is, he has not been long in service in the house, and it is not known what confidence may be placed in him. Besides, the mind of the victim of the theft cannot understand how any other thief could have got into the room. It must therefore be the servant who has stolen the article, and if the investigating officer is not more intelligent than the complainant, Suspicion will continue to rest upon him or her. Hence, if the thief has been clever enough to leave no striking trace of his passage, one can understand without difficulty the regrettable error that may be committed to the prejudice of an innocent person. If, then, a theft remains unexplained, in the sense that the way in which the thief has entered the house is unknown, and suspicion falls upon servants of irreproachable conduct, the question must be asked whether the thief could not have entered by the roof or the water pipes.
In a well-known criminal novel, the plot is worked out on the hypothesis that a person who had been a chimney sweep descended into the house through a large old-fashioned chimney and got away by the same channel after having committed a big theft. Though told in a novel, the method is not impossible, and it is astonishing that it is not met with more frequently. A clever and audacious Madras burglar, now spending the evening of his days in the Andamans, always entered by the top of the house. He operated on the biggest mansions, the ground-floor verandas and doors of which were always well guarded by armies of peons and watchmen. He always worked single-handed and never carried an implement of any kind. Being a man of great agility, he easily reached the top story by means of the outside bathroom stairs so common in Madras, rainwater pipes, parapets, etc. Here, the coolest part, were generally the bedrooms of the Dorai and Mem Sahib, windows all open, jewelry thrown off after a ball, and toilet ornaments lying about. These rooms despoiled, he coolly worked his way downstairs, picking up any trifles as he went, until he reached the ground floor, where he opened a door and made off. Any noise at this stage did not matter, as the startled servants always rushed into the house to catch the thief, who, meanwhile, was making his way out of the compound as noiselessly as a cat. He was generally detected through his stupid dealing with the booty. Breaking into houses through the outer walls, though still most common with the mud structures of India, is less seldom resorted to in Europe, probably because walls are more solidly built now than formerly. Much more frequently, we find the thief working through walls or ceilings from one house to another, the operating house being an empty one or rented temporarily for the occasion. If a wall has to be broken through, the job is comparatively easy. It is, however, a work of art to break through a ceiling. This is done either from the next house or from a loft in which the thief has concealed himself. First, a sufficiently large piece, say about 20 inches square, of the floor is sawn through the boards, or the boards are cut out, and then with great care, a hole about the size of a fist is worked between the beams, and through this hole, the plaster of the ceiling is carefully examined. Then an umbrella is fastened by its handle to a cord, dropped through the hole, and opened with the help of some previously arranged device. The most recent invention, whereby on pressing a small knob in the handle of the umbrella opens automatically, is well adapted for this purpose. Then the small hole is slowly enlarged, and the falling material is caught in the open umbrella, and so all dangerous noise is avoided. When the opening is large enough, the thief descends with the help of a rope. Most large thefts in banks and jewelers' shops are nowadays executed in this way. The most detailed accounts of ultimately successful roof and ceiling breaking are those of the Chevalier de Sangot in his historic description of his escape, after 18 months' confinement, from Les Plombs, the famous prison of the Doges at Venice. His ingenuity, audacity, and caution 
have never been excelled by the cleverest modern housebreaker. End of section 16. Recording by Linda Johnson.